Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Inspiring authors and readers since 2006. Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, episode 270. M.R. Carey, The Girl with All the Gifts. A short introduction to this episode, my novelette Scavenger, which is uh, kind of like Dune meets 24. It's a Hugh Howey Sand fanfic, uh, his novel Sand. I'm doing a promo, a free promo for Monday through Wednesday, August 11th through 13th on Kindle. I've moved it to the Kindle Unlimited program. Um, lots of different opinions on the benefits of joining this program. Uh, for me, I chose it partly because this is a Hugh Howey fanfic project, and most of his fans, um, all of his work is on Kindle Unlimited, and so uh, I'm thinking most of his fans are going to be on that program as well. And, you know, why not? Give it a shot. I am working on part two, uh, so, you know, it's a standalone story, but I think you know, the goal is to get people to like it enough to want to hear more and to get some reviews up there for when I post the next part. So free story, August 11th through 13th. Uh, please go out and get it. All right, folks. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy the show. Thank you for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. I'm your host, Timothy C. Ward. Today on the line, we have author of the newly released book from Orbit Books, The Girl with All the Gifts. His name is M.R. Carey. Hi, Tim. Hello. Uh, so M.R. Carey is a pen name. Um, would you like me to keep your real name a secret for the show, or what do you think? No, I, I, it, it, it's a fairly open secret, and I think it's a fairly, uh, a fairly penetrable pseudonym. <laughs> Very good. Yes, your, uh, your Goodread pages are are pretty uh, clear to distinguish from. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Mike Carey. Um, I, I was also briefly Adam Blake. Uh, so I, I, I have um, previous form as far as pseudonyms go. Um, it's become a kind of thing, I think, in the, in the publishing industry to pers- persuade a writer to use a, or suggest that a writer uses a pseudonym when they uh, switch genre or choose a new approach, start a new series or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, I just finished The Girl with All the Gifts, and uh, it presented a little bit of a challenge. Um, Well, first, I really wanted to talk to you because it's probably the best read of the year for me. Um, Thank you. And uh, I would love for our audience to just have such a high opinion of my reading tastes (laughs) that they would take (laughs) that and just go read it. Um, I think it would really benefit the readers not to have any preconceived notions about the story. Um, And so for this interview, we're going to talk a little bit about your career, and then we're going to break a little bit of that barrier into the genre that the story is in, Uh, because even not knowing the genre would have been cool for how it's presented. Uh, And then after that, if we have time, we'll get into some spoilers, possibly. Cool. So um, I read in your bio that you were first a teacher, and then you started getting into comic book writing. 
Uh, I wonder if you could get into just a little bit about how you started in that industry. Comics were always a big part of my life. Um, and it's something I've noticed uh, when I talk to other fans, that people who get the comic book habit tend to get it young. Uh, the people who have a passionate connection to comics are people who are introduced to it when they're kids. Um, in the UK, there are lots, there used to be lots of humor comics for little kids. The Beano, the Dandy, the Topper, the Beta, the Sparky, Wither and Ships. Um, they've all sadly died, died, uh, died out since, except for the Beano. It's the only one that's left. Um, but I grew up loving those books, and I grew up um, you know, feeling the comics were a, a medium that, that, that was always going to be important to me. Um, and I drifted into comics journalism. I started doing reviews and then feature articles for amateur magazines, fanzines. And the uh, the first pitch I made for a comic series arose out of that. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I'd seen one comic script, I think, when I first started writing, which was the script for Watchmen 1. It was published in the back of the trade paperback edition. And I thought for a while that everybody had to write like Alan Moore. So I was producing these um, enormous novel-length uh, comic scripts. And uh, eventually I got, I got one of them accepted by a British publisher. Then I started working on the U.S. indie scene with Malibu and then with Calibre. And uh, I was sort of an overnight success in 10 years. <laughs> so what, what's the time frame for this? Uh, this would have been from about the uh, late late 80s through mid-90s. So what do you think you brought to the comic book industry that was unique through your, your characters and stories? And so, who were some of the characters that you wrote? Uh, at that stage, um, well, the, 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 the stuff that I pitched in the UK actually never happened. There, was, there were like two episodes of one story, Aquarius, that... Um, that did come out, and then the company went bankrupt. The company was Apocalypse Press, uh, and they, they only existed for a couple of years. Uh, I was writing a, a very, very Watchmen-inspired superhero series for them. Um, <clears throat> then I did a whole bunch of books for Malibu that were about rock stars. I did an Ozzy Osbourne comic. I did a Pantera comic. Um, it was when I made the break to Calibre that, that I started to find my comfort zone. Most of what I did for Calibre was, I guess, horror or dark fantasy, which was what I was mostly reading at the time. And um, it was kind of where my center of gravity was creatively. This was after Sandman, after Swamp Thing, um, and I, I, I guess Moore and Gaiman and, and Grant Morrison were my three biggest influences at that time. Um, as, as to what I brought, I, that, that's a very, very tough question to answer. I think there was, a, there was definitely a period in that sort of 80s to 90s um, window when um, British writers had a cachet. They had a real unique selling point. And it was because um, the first British writers to make it in the American market uh, to any real extent were the three I just mentioned, Moore uh, and then Gaiman. And then Morrison. Actually, I think that sequence is uh, is wrong. But uh, American editors started to come over to the UK. They were convinced that we were a whole island full of um, insane geniuses, and it was it was quite easy, or as easier than it had been, to get yourself on the radar of an American publisher um, because there were those precedents. They, uh, the, those those guys played the, played the trail. 
that the rest of us followed. Um, and, the, and there's a sense, too, in which you know, they were all, what they had in common was they were all iconoclastic writers. They were writers who were prepared to break the mold to do completely new things with what seemed like old and familiar formulas. Um, and again, British writers were expected, encouraged, welcomed to do that. You know, come, come, come and play with, play with, play in the sandbox and do something crazy. Um, I, I, I think, you know, that if there ever was a, um, a British movement in comics, it was the first generation um, that, that, that sort of embodied it, and we were kind of, um, we were copying the experiments they made uh, before we found our own feet and, and our own sort of creative directions. So when did you move from comics to uh, prose fiction? That would have been around about 2002, 2003. Um, I was writing Hellblazer at the time, and I was pitching um, prose uh ideas, novel ideas, to various UK publishers, because it was always something I wanted to do. In fact, I, I, wrote, I wrote my first novels before I wrote my first comic scripts. It's just that they were not publishable because they had no structure. I, I knew nothing um, back then about how to structure a story. I would, I would literally just get an idea, write chapter one, go away, make myself a cup of tea, come back, write chapter two, uh, play a game of Sonic the Hedgehog, write chapter three, <laughs> and, and rinse and repeat until I got to the end. Um, writing comics taught me about structure, taught me to budget, taught me to um, to think in terms of beats and to think in terms of arcs. Um, so I was pitching stuff to UK publishers, and the fact that I was writing Hellblazer, which was a very high-profile book, was kind of my calling card. Uh, and I pitched an idea which became The Devil You Know, the first of the Felix Caster novels, and I sent the Hellblazer comics to um, to the editor's uh, a little brown and said it will be like this it will have something of this flavor um, and very fortunately the guy i was pitching to uh, darren nash was a big hellblazer fan and he totally got it and, and was very enthusiastic to um to make that happen two of the things that i really loved about the girl with all the gifts is the structure and the character arcs so i think you you have learned and uh really impressed me with those elements what kind of pre-writing do you like to do to prepare yourself for that? I used to structure everything obsessively. I used to plan um, very explicitly in a great length. I've still got the chapter breakdown for the first uh, novel I ever wrote, the Castor. Never, uh, you know, the first of the Castor novels. And the, the chapter breakdown runs to 26 closely typed A4 pages. It's about nine, ten thousand 10,000 words long. Um, so it's kind of almost novella length itself. Um, I've loosened up a bit since then. I, I, I've learned that a combination of pre-planning and um, serendipity, flexibility, works best for me. I like to have a plan. I like to have a skeleton. But I also like to have the freedom to depart from it um, because an awful lot of great ideas will strike you while, when you're writing. If the plan is too rigid, then you can't take advantage of them. Um, so I, 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 do, I do still plan in a certain amount of detail, but I'm less um, anally retentive about it than I used to be. So I read that The Girl with All the Gifts uh, started out as a short story that you were asked to write. Would you just share how, towards the end of the deadline, you came up with this idea? Yeah, it was um, for one of the, the annual 
themed anthologies that uh, Tony Kellner and Charlene Harris edit, where the, the theme is always something very, very harmless and, and uh, seemingly innocuous, uh, home improvements or family vacations. And the particular year that I said I would contribute the theme was school days. Uh, and having said that I would do it, I sat for four months staring at the wall. Um, actually, I was working on other projects, but I couldn't think of a single decent idea for this story, a supernatural story or dark fantasy story or horror story with a school setting or a school theme. Um, and the deadline was looming, and I was getting a little bit frantic. And then I just woke up one morning with this image in my head, and the image was of a little girl in a classroom writing an essay, and the essay is what I'm going to do when I grow up, what I'm going to do when I get big. <clears throat> Only um, the cruel irony was that the girl was already dead, and therefore everything she was writing was um, already barred to her. She was never going to grow up. Um, obviously, that's a long way away from what the story became, but that was the, the sort of seed out of which the uh, the story came. Um, the story was Iphigenia and Alice, and the character of Melanie is in the, the character of Sergeant Parks is in there, um, and Helen Justina. The names are different, but they're all um, they're all present in that story to to some extent. Uh, Caldwell and Gallagher are not at all, and to a certain extent, I think that the payoff in the short story is not earned. The story is about the relationship between the little girl and her teacher and the soldier, uh, and it ends with the little girl and the soldier reaching a kind of grudging respect and fighting back to back um, as as the base falls. But it, but I sort of felt like within the within the scope of the story, I'd done nothing to to kind of set up or or earn that moment. So that there's there's kind of an emotional kernel there, but it needed a lot more work. And and I was fascinated with Melanie. I really enjoyed writing Melanie, um, writing this this innocent little girl who was also um, something something else, something completely else. Um, and I, I felt like her story hadn't been finish you know that I'd written the first chapter of something bigger um so I pitched it I came back to the UK I wrote it in Norway because I was I was there for a convention I came back to the UK and I um, had a meeting with my my editor Anne Clark and I was very nervous because I owed her another book um and I, I explained to her that I didn't want to write this book that I was contracted for and commissioned for um I wanted to write something something else in a different genre with a, a different, a completely different feel. Um, and I showed her the short story, and basically she bought it. Uh, it was very, very complicated because the contracts were with an agency that I was no longer with. So I also had to go back to my, my old agents and say, look, could you let me out of this contract and let me do something else that you won't get any money from at all? Um, <laughs> Wow! And, um, amazingly, they were not—they were not that enthusiastic. But um, <laughs> eventually, we sorted it all out. And um, at the same time, I got the movie commission, so I was writing the the novel and the movie screenplay side by side. So this is going to be a movie? It is. Well, with, um, touching wood, as I say that, I mean it, it, it's um, it's in development. We have a completed screenplay which I wrote. Uh, we have a director. We have two two passionate line producers, um, passionate about the project, I mean. Um, we have uh, a casting director. In theory, we have a Caldwell. We have a, a Caroline Caldwell. So the, the process of casting is already uh, is already underway, and we're aiming for a shoot early next year. It's very exciting. Wow. 
So I think we should break the wall here. Um, so we're not going to discuss actual spoilers beyond the genre that some may have already guessed uh, with Melanie being dead and writing an essay. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to talk about zombies now. So I'm a big zombie fan. I was so thrilled that this is on my short list of awesome zombie books. And after not being a huge fan of World War Z, I'm really excited to see this hit the big screen. How did you progress from that idea to to the novel? And how did the maybe the zombie stereotypes and cliches and bad zombie stuff and good zombie stuff, how did that kind of inspire this? Wow, complicated question to answer, actually, because there's a lot of things that came together, really. Um, I mean, I, 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 love, I love a good zombie story. I love the Romero movies. I love 28 Days Later. Um, I guess but, um, Colin, Colin McCarthy, who is the director on the movie of Girl with All the Gifts, has a theory about great monsters, which is that you should always be able to see yourself in, in a really, really good monster. And monsters are always really us. Um, that they're kind of distorted reflections of the human condition. Um, And, you know, obviously you can see how that applies to vampires. Most vampire stories are kind of about sex in one one way or another. Sometimes they're about um, sexually transmitted diseases, but they're always about illicit desires, about about passion. Um, I think zombies are... They, they, they reflect us in two ways, because a zombie is a corpse. It's an animated corpse, but it's also a human being that's lost the last traces of sentience. So it's an animal as well. It's a beast. Uh, it consists of only hungers and, and no, no thought. So it reminds us that we used to be animals you know, before we developed sentience. It reminds us of our origins, and it reminds us of our destination that after we're dead, we're, we're, we're going to rot away. Um, it's like zombies have us surrounded on both sides. And therefore, they challenge our, um, our conception of what we are as people. And I wanted to write a zombie story that would be, that would be about that, that would be about um, humanity, about finding it, about losing it, about you know, what makes us human and under what conditions are we human. So I was reading, you wrote a guest post for SF Signal about the science of the girl with all the gifts. You said that a virus isn't as scary as a parasite. Expand on that, why you think a parasite is is scarier and a, and a better use for your zombie mythos. Maybe it's just me. I find, I find parasites pan-sweatingly pan scary. You know, I, I think that um, a creature that can live on you, can colonize you, um, take, a, take over a part of you and make, make you into a dwelling place, is, is one of the creepiest uh, things, creepiest concepts that could possibly be. Um, but even within that, there are some parasites that are scarier than others. And I think the, um, the cordyceps fungus is, is you know, one of the scariest of those scary creatures because it's, a, it's part of a class of parasites that are um, basically mind-controlling. So they, they, they control the behaviors of their hosts. Once, once, once they've got their hooks into you, they flood your body with, um, with substances which act like your own brain's uh, neurotransmitters. 
they take you and drive you away. They, they make you do things that are not in your best interest. Most of them don't affect humans. Most of them affect um, simpler organisms, and the cordyceps virus mostly uh, affects ants. But once an ant has it, you know, it's basically a robot controlled by the fungus. Um, I read just recently, uh, somebody posted online an abstract of a study done by an American university, a West Coast university, where they they were looking at biomass. They were weighing biomass in three estuaries on the California coast. And what they found was um, parasites are not only much, much more numerous than predators, which you would expect because they're smaller, but they also outweigh predators. Parasitic biomass, the total weight of all the parasites in, in an estuary, outweighs the predators by 20 to 1. Most of the living things on this planet, by mass, are parasites. If that doesn't scare you, you're not thinking about it. <laughs> Very good. Introduce us to some of your characters and, and kind of give us kind of their dual aspects of uh, good and evil within each of them. I guess I wasn't thinking of any of them as um, as irredeemably evil, although, you know, arguably if there's a monster in the book, it's Caroline Caldwell. Um the book centers on Melanie. <clears throat> Melanie is um, our high-functioning zombie protagonist. She's a 10-year-old girl, very emotionally open, very intellectually curious, um, loving, kind, generous-hearted, um, vivacious, uh, but she's also a zombie. And if she smells unprotected human flesh, then it will trigger um, an irresistible hunger in her. She will have no control over her actions. She will have to eat. Um, and Melanie is the touchstone for all of the other characters. There are characters in the book who are unable to see past her zombie nature. Uh, Caroline Caldwell, the scientist in charge of the base where Melanie is, um, is kept, is imprisoned, sees Melanie not just as a threat to be contained, uh, or, or not just as an experimental subject, although she is primarily a specimen, um, she's there to help Caldwell find a cure for the zombie pathogen, a cure for this disease. Um, but she actually sees Melanie as um, no longer human at all. She's just a vector for the fungus and nothing else. Because most people who get this infection, it wipes out their higher brain functions. They can't think anymore. All they can do is run and hunt and eat. Um, Melanie is one of a handful of kids who've got the infection, but seem to be normal human beings apart from the hunger. They can still think. They can still reason. They can still respond as people to the world around them. Um, but to Corbell, all of that is negated by the fact that this is an infected human, possibly a clue to a cure, but not to be treated as a, as a, as a real individual. Um, and Sergeant Park, Sergeant Eddie Parks, the... Um, the, the, the sort of acting, the officer in charge of the base, although he's only a sergeant, um, which shows you how how, uh, how bad things have got, really, how close to collapse this society is. Um, he similarly just sees Melanie as um, as a threat, as as a monster, and kind of resists every temptation to, to see her as anything else, to form any kind of a human relationship with her. On the other side of the equation, we've got uh, Helen Justino, who is Melanie's teacher, um, 
Well, uh, Justino is a, is, a, is a psychologist, and she's there basically to empathize with the kids and to to sort of interrogate their, their minds in a, in a, in a, from a psychological perspective, as Corbel does from a physical perspective, and try to figure out you know, in what way, to what extent their responses are human, to what extent they've been compromised by the fungus. Um, but Justino is aware that Melanie has a huge crush on her. Mel- Melanie loves her. She's, her. she's Melanie's favorite teacher, and she can't resist that love. Um, she, she's kind of drawn into a warm and, and affectionate relationship with Melanie against her will. Um, so it seems like at the start of the book, the battle lines are drawn up. You know, there are some characters who are good, there are some characters who are evil, and, and you kind of measure them by their, by their reactions to Melanie. But as the story goes on, we see that, well, you know, Colbell thinks she's saving humanity. She's doing atrocious things. You know, she's, she's committing um, unforgivable acts. But she's doing it to save the human race, and she thinks that justifies anything. And Justino, who is so kind and so loving and so open to Melanie, she has a, a, a guilty secret of her own. She has she has a past in which she has done dark things, and um, to some extent, she's a, she's trying to atone for that. There's a wonderful quote from Jean Wolfe that um, I, I wheel out whenever anyone will let me. It's in the um, the Torturer Quartet. His character, Severian, says, there is in every man's heart an altar in which he tries to atone for the past using the debased currency of the present. And that's what Justino is trying to do, you know, trying, to, trying to buy some kind of um, forgiveness for herself. Um, and Parks, once, once, the, once the base falls and they're all out on the road trying to survive in a... In a a zombie-infested landscape, Parks realizes that Melanie is the only one who can really um, help him with that project. She has skills that he absolutely needs, and that, and that changes the way he feels about her, it changes the way he responds to her, um, and it leads to a situation where the two of them are working together um, kind of over the heads of the other um, adults who are present. Very effective job in creating sympathy for Melanie the zombie. Um, as a as a zombie fan, I haven't. I don't know where the the bias came from, but I haven't always loved the the stories with the zombie POVs in them. But uh, this one's very sympathetic, and uh, even with Doctor Caldwell, I mean, you really understand what she's trying. I mean, she's trying to save the human race, uh, and so yeah, sympathy all around for all the characters. Uh, just terrific job. Thank you. It, it, it was kind of um, it was one of the things I was um, keenest to do in, in the story, really, to, to, to sort of keep all those characters um, in flux as the story went on, and to stop stop um, the reader from closing their mind to any of them. I, I didn't mention Gallagher, who's the uh, the, the other um, the other adult who's, who's in this party, uh, a young soldier who, in many ways, is is more naive and more helpless than Melanie, and. and the friendship that forms between the two of them was, was something I, I really enjoyed writing. There's a scene where she reads to him um, because she's a better reader than him, and, and uh, it, it's it's kind of it's kind of touching that she takes on a, the maternal role uh, as, as, though he, as though he's the child. He is sort of a side character, but I was impressed. He also has a very powerful arc, um, so I enjoyed him as well. Well, we only have a couple more minutes. And so I want to just tell everybody, The Girl with All the Gifts, M.R. Carey, 
um, go check it out through Orbit Books. Um, let's see. I will put in the show notes the the short story that this was based on. Has that been published? Yes. Yeah, it, it is published in uh, a collection, an anthology called An Apple for the Creature. Okay. I'll put uh, links in the show notes for those. Listeners, if you haven't read the book, go ahead, stop now. Um, if I could ask you, what surprised you about how this story ended up? When you put it like that, um, some of the beats between the characters at the end were surprises to me, that, that, that they, they weren't in the plan. There's a conversation between Melanie and uh, Dr. Caldwell, where basically Melanie tells Caldwell some of the things that she's missed. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, it's almost a tragic beat because this woman who has uh, all, all along um, been acting out of a kind of intellectual pride and arrogance as well as out of a, um, uh, a, a desire to, 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 to save the human race, is forced to accept that the, little, the child who was going to be her, her lab rat um, has, has seen some things that she missed, has, has made some logical leaps that she wasn't capable of. Um, that was that was a surprise, I guess. And um, the fact that Caldwell, the, the fact that Helen Justino and Sergeant Parks, to some extent, um, come together, wasn't particularly planned either, but just happened. Um, the way in which the future of the world is resolved, the way in which um, the Pandora's box story becomes relevant and Melanie becomes the girl who opens the box, uh, that was always planned. Well, that was sure a surprise to me. <laughs> uh, and that, that's interesting because um, one of her revelations to Dr. Caldwell is the how the brush fire is what sets the, the spores to, I don't know what the technical term would be, um, but isn't that like one of the main trigger points to Melanie's revelation on how to unleash the parasite on the world? Oh, yeah, very much. Um, but, but, but it's Melanie who's sort of pulled all those ideas together. It's Melanie who's sort of um, realized how, how, how you do that, how, how, you, um, how you take the fungus onto the next stage. Um, and it goes right back to the very, very beginning of the story. One of the pictures on her wall is trees in the Amazon rainforest. And she's reflecting at one point about how some seeds um, don't germinate unless there's a fire, that they're, they're, they're born out of destruction, um, that some kinds of life uh, take their, you know, need, need, that, need that impetus of destruction first. Um, <clears throat> so yes, they're, 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 that is one of, the, uh, one of the main themes there. But the idea that she would explain it to, to Caldwell came to me at the last moment. Okay. So will this be a standalone then? For the time being, Tim, yeah, it will. I mean, it, it, there is room for a sequel, and I wouldn't rule out um, eventually going back. But if I did, I think it would be a very different kind of book, and it would probably take place a long time after the events of the first book. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not in any hurry to write it now. I'd rather the, 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 the story stands alone for now um, and does its own thing. If I do go back, it would be about uh, five, ten years from now. Um, and I would imagine that that book would have a different cast. Um, and and arguably it would be in a different genre or a different subgenre. Interesting things to ponder. Uh, I hear that you do have one more book with the M.R. Carey 
uh, name, so I'm excited for that. Uh, it's it's not, not not out yet, but yeah, I'm, I'm just finishing writing it. Yes. So it'll, be mm-hmm. out, it'll be out next year. Um, no working title as yet. Well, I'm looking forward to that as well, and I'm, I'm looking forward to checking out more of your stuff. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Mike. It was great to chat with you, and um, supremely awesome to read your book. Thank you for that. Cheers, Tim. All the best. All right, you too. Thank you so much for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. To find out more about our show, our team, our reviews and articles, and so much more, head to adventuresinsci-fipublishing.com. If you're an author, go tap those keys. And if you're a reader, I guess that means you should go read. Till next time, folks, keep it sci-fi. Sci-Fi.